Breaking Walls is presented with thanks to the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama Variety and Comedy, 20,000 Hertz, the Fireside Mystery Theater, and the Bowery Boys. after 7 p.m. on Sunday, March 11, 1888. We are on the roof of the Equitable Life Assurance Society building at 120 Broadway in Lower Manhattan. The movement you're hearing is coming from Sergeant Elias B. Dunn, New York City's chief weatherman. He's come up to the roof to take the temperature. At the time, the Weather Bureau kept in touch with the Coast Guard through telephone, telegraph, and carrier pigeons. Like other weather station chiefs, Dunn is linked to 170 regular government weather stations all over the country, and Sunday's forecast called for light rain. Ordinarily, no one manned the Bureau on Sundays, but during the afternoon, the early spring weather had suddenly and alarmingly taken a turn for the worse, with the temperature rapidly falling. Now, what was thought to be a passing rain shower has turned into heavy sleet with almost gale-force winds. After taking the temperature, Dunn rushes downstairs into his office below to worriedly telegraph the conditions to Washington, D.C. He'll get no response. All communication for New York with the outside world was gone. Overnight, the freezing rain turned to snow. By daybreak Monday morning, New York was engulfed in a furious blizzard with winds as high as 85 miles per hour and temperature conditions still rapidly falling. People were trapped inside homes, places of business, or, most dangerously, stuck out on the streets. The snow would continue with hurricane force until Tuesday evening, 48 hours after the storm began. In New York City, an estimated 200 people died. The reason the entire eastern seaboard of the United States lost contact during the Great Blizzard of 1888? Overhead communication wires. Numerous telephone, telegraph, and electrical poles were destroyed. Their snapped, electrified wires created additional danger amidst the 40-foot snowdrifts. The highest snowdrift, 52 feet, would be recorded in Gravesend, Brooklyn. In the aftermath, New York passed legislation for necessitating all power lines to be buried underground. The storm exasperated the need for reliable communication without wires. The previous year, German physicist Heinrich Hertz proved the existence of electromagnetic waves, which were first theorized in James Clerk Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. Hertz did so by setting up the first spark transmitter and receiver. The transmitter consisted of a laden jar that stored electricity and a coil of wire, the ends of which were left open so that a small gap was formed. The receiver was a similar coil on the other end of the room. When the jar was charged, electricity flew across the gap and was received on the other end. At first, these waves were nicknamed Hertzian waves. Today, they're called radio waves. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny talking and making my first appearance on the air professionally. By that I mean I'm finally getting paid.
which of course will be a great... Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own biggest-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. Tonight is our opening night, and tonight is the first day of the new year, so we're going to do a comedy for you to start our new series. Something like a spray of confetti to go with the season. A story about a young man and his wife in 1953. Hello, you. Rita. You're looking well, Edward. So are you. Ask me in, darling. Oh, come here. The president of Mutual Broadcasting and Competing Network sent a telegram to Paley saying... When radio distinguishes itself in this fashion, it is good for the entire industry, and we want to congratulate you and thank you. And, you know, it was given that kind of treatment. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among radio thrillers. If I hadn't swerved... If I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. But this is not a night of names, of personalities. Our names or any names are meaningless unless your names are added. Unless you join us. You, for whom the sacred rites were written. We were a family. It was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from. When I arrived, all the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. I verify this thing. I, who have come a long distance to this table and must go far hence, I verify this thing. That brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. Take his majesty's coat off. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. Everything was gone over the airwaves. You know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, mm -hmm. what a situation looked like in their own minds by sound effects and by the person's voice. Ricky... Why don't you have the rehearsal here? Honey, are you crazy? I got a 16-piece band. I'll blow the roof off the joints. Well, it doesn't look like rain. It imposes on the actor the necessity to create everything, to create the sets, to create the costumes, to create the expressions, to create everything. And I think one of the great drawbacks of television is that so much of it is just sort of visualized radio shows where they ought to really write television shows. There were some very good actors among radio actors, actors who unfortunately never extended, when radio died, never did anything else. Perhaps they did not look, which was a big yeah. disadvantage, they did not look as they sounded, you see. 
I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once, I realized that the wind had died. The Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over. I've always wondered why it had to be, but I guess that's it. There's just so many hours in the day. You know, I think perhaps this can be the most exciting interview we've conducted on the program because it's going to enable us to look ahead for the first time. Now, Radio is coming back. The name of the show is... Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 75. My name is James Scully. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, I'd like to say thank you and welcome to the show. Today on Breaking Walls, we're beginning a long-term story arc on the history of American dramatic radio. What is dramatic radio? Well, prior to television, people tuned into the radio to hear their favorite comedies, thrillers, westerns, high-adventure dramas, soap operas, and kids' shows, along with the talk news, sports, and music that still dominate the airwaves today. Radio drama on the major networks of ABC, CBS, and NBC mostly went out in the late 1950s and early 1960s due to the growth of television. And the story of this industry isn't widely known to the American public. I'd like to change that. In 2018, thanks to the growth of podcasts, there are some life stirring in the world of scripted audio entertainment. I hope that going forward, Breaking Walls can add to this life. In order to tell the story of American radio drama, we're starting at the beginning of radio, before there was any programming at all to dramatize. As you heard on the prologue, Heinrich Hertz confirmed the existence of electromagnetic waves in 1887. This scientific discovery still has a huge impact on our lives today. Not only for radio, but television, the internet, cellular telephone reception, they all go back to that moment. On the prologue, you also heard Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune. It was played beautifully by Miss Elizabeth Hayden and arranged for vibraphone and harp by David DePeters. Miss Hayden's latest album, Home, Works for Solo Harp, is available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and Pandora. And you can find out more information about her at elizabethhanen.com. If you enjoy this episode and believe in what will follow, please leave an iTunes rating and review. I'd be incredibly grateful for that. And tell your friends and loved ones. Word of mouth will help Breaking Walls grow. You can also support the show and unlock juicy bonus content and other fun extras at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group or follow the show on Instagram and on Twitter. Ellis Island, December 17, 1900. It's the main building's opening day, and this facility is already proving to be barely able to handle the flood of immigrants. In the United States of America, the last 25 years of the 19th century were marked by wild economic fluctuations, depressions, government corruption, labor strife, corporate wealth, and a population boom. In 1860, the last year before the Civil War, roughly 31.5 million people lived in the U.S. By 1900, there were over 76 million U.S. inhabitants. Decade by decade, new immigrants entered the country. But in 1900, 60% of those 76 million people still lived in rural areas. Out in farming country, direct conversation and the written word were still the only two forms of communication. As the U.S. population grew, so did the need for the telegraph, along with wireless telegraphy on trains and large ocean vessels. In 1880, Alexander Graham Bell patented the first wireless communication device called the photophone. It was essentially solar powered. It used a voice signal to modulate a light beam, then used photoelectric cells to convert the light beam into electricity. This electricity could then power a conventional telephone. In 1882, Bell transmitted from a boat in the Potomac River near Washington, D.C., but his results were unimpressive. 
he soon gave up the wireless game. However, that same year, Amos Dolbear, a physics professor at Tufts University in Boston, mistakenly came up with a wireless telephone design when he disconnected the telephone he had set up in his physics lab. To his surprise, he could hear sounds from across the room through the receiver. He learned that the current in the coil at the transmitter was conducting electricity towards the passive coil in the receiver. His electromagnetic induction was completing the circuit. Professor Dolbear then perfected his wireless telephone so that he could communicate between his home and lab a third of a mile away. Dolbear used elevated aerial condensers attaching them to both the transmitter and the receiver of his telephone. He patented the discovery in March of 1886, but the device lacked any way to detect the radio frequency in the air, so communication was solely the result of induction. The next year, Heinrich Hertz proved James Clerk Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. This opened the door for Nikola Tesla to invent his Tesla coil in 1893. Tesla's coil used the Earth as a means of conduction. His alternators created high-frequency oscillations of up to 33,000 cycles, or hertz, per second. Tesla's coil was the forerunner to the high-frequency alternators used for continuous wave radio communication. We of the latter edge of the 19th century have become supercilious with regard to novelties in science. Yet our languor may be stirred at the prospect of telegraphing through the air and wood and stone without so much as a copper wire to carry the message. We are learning to launch our winged words. The New York Times. Today we know radio waves exist. It's a long proven phenomenon. But in the 1880s, understanding radio technology required someone to believe invisible waves that flow through the air existed could carry an electrical charge in the air in the form of sound, be received by an antenna decoded, and made listenable by a receiving device. The public skepticism was understandable. After Heinrich Hertz proved the existence of these electromagnetic waves, both inventors and engineers began to work towards improving wireless transmission. Hertz's mechanism was crudely built and could only detect radio waves at a short distance. The first improvement, a receiver called a coherer, was designed by Oliver Lodge in 1894. Lodge was a British physicist at the University of Liverpool. He had been working independently of and simultaneously with Hertz at proving James Clerk Maxwell's theories. Rather than use metal rods to receive the waves, Lodge shaved the conducting metal into small bits under the theory that it would create a stronger resistance to the radio waves. The coherer was a six-inch long glass tube filled with iron shavings. When the iron shavings came into contact with electromagnetic waves, their resistance was greatly decreased, but when the coherer was jar or tapped, the shavings would regain their high resistance. Lodge's improvements included what he called the trembler, or decoherer, which mechanically shook the shavings so they'd regain their resistance after being charged. At the University of Bologna, August Rigi created a new spark gap which consisted of four metal spheres. In 1895, Rigi's 21-year-old pupil, Guglielmo Marconi, introduced two key components that would transport the system from the laboratory into the commercial world. The first was the Morse key, which now could regulate the flow of electromagnetic waves into the device, and the second was called the Earthed Aerial. The idea obsessed me more and more, and I worked it out in imagination. I did not attempt any experiments until we returned to the Villa Griffoni in the autumn. But then two large rooms at the top of the house were set aside for me by my mother. And there I began experiments in earnest. 
Guglielmo Marconi was born on April 25, 1874 in Bologna, Italy. His father Giuseppe was an aristocratic landowner who managed a large estate. His mother, Annie Jameson, was of the Scotch-Irish Jameson family of brewers and distillers. Annie insisted her son speak both English and Italian fluently, a fact Guglielmo would be incredibly grateful for later when he avoided most Italian stereotypes in the press in both London and New York. As a child, Marconi liked to conduct experiments with machinery and electrical apparatuses. His mother encouraged him, even hiring a private physics tutor. At 13, Annie enrolled her son in the Technical Institute at the port city of Livorno. While there, Guglielmo learned how to read and write Morse code. As luck would have it, the University of Bologna professor, August Righi, was a neighbor of the Marconis, and when Guglielmo returned from Livorno in 1893, Annie pressed Righi to allow her son to sit in on the professor's classes. In 1895, while Marconi was experimenting with the metal plates that were connected to the outside ends of the spark gap, he discovered the earthed aerial. He had hoped that by replacing Hertz's small plates with the larger slabs of sheet iron and elevating them above the ground, he would obtain longer waves with greater distance. However, when Marconi temporarily placed one of the slabs on the ground while holding the other slab up in the air, he noticed a considerable increase in the strength of the received signals. This observation led him to making sure both the transmitter and receiver had a connection to the Earth, as well as to a vertical conductor, or earthed aerial. That was when I first saw a great new way open before me. Not a triumph. Triumph was far distant. But I understood in that moment that I was on a good road. My invention had taken life. I had made an important discovery. This new aerial helped him increase the distance of his signal to over three miles. Marconi transmitted this Morse code with the Morse key that he invented. It was suggested, since wireless was allied to the sea, it might be best that I go to England, where there was a greater shipping activity, and, of course, that was a logical place from which to attempt transatlantic signaling. Also, my mother's relatives in England were helpful to me. In February of 1896, Annie Jameson, who knew England was a country with a heavy maritime influence, suggested Guglielmo go there with his wireless transmitter. Soon, Marconi transmitted messages between ships 12 miles apart. The notoriety helped him secure investors. On July 20th, 1897, at the age of 23, and with 100,000 pounds, Marconi and his associates incorporated the Wireless Telegraph and Signal Company Limited. On March 28, 1899, Marconi successfully linked the opposite shores of the English Channel. The message was reported to be as distinct as a telegram. Soon, the company name was changed to Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company Limited, and there was one place left for the 25-year-old inventor to go, the United States of America. In 1899, New York Herald publisher James Gordon Bennett Jr. offered Marconi $5,000 to cover the America's Cup yacht races for the Herald. James Gordon Bennett Sr. first published the New York Herald on May 6, 1835. The Herald's success was due partly to its many innovations, like the paper's ability to obtain the first exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with a sitting president, Martin Van Buren, and because Bennett Sr. was a champion of Morse's telegraph and Edison's light bulb. In the 1830s, Bennett Sr. had pioneered the use of dispatch boats to intercept ships bringing news from Europe. He did this so Herald would receive news hours before the steamers docked. When James Gordon Bennett Jr. took over in 1866, the paper moved to its new offices here on the site of Broadway and Ann Street. Below the street level were two immense cellars or vaults, one below the other, which housed two steam engines of 35 horsepower each. 
three immense printing presses were kept running constantly from midnight until 7 in the morning printing the daily edition. Bennett Jr. then established the commercial cable company to expedite transatlantic communication even further. Competition over speedy news gathering was driving the technology and by 1900, although a revolution had taken place both in transportation and in communications, because deep Atlantic ship-to-shore communication was impossible, the two revolutions had not converged. Marconi proposed bridging the gap by sending Morse code through the air wirelessly. Wednesday, October 4th, 1899. All of New York was in the midst of a week-long celebration. The previous Saturday, a parade for Spanish-American war hero Admiral Dewey took place, and the Admiral's triumphant return helped set the mood for Guglielmo. That Sunday, the Herald announced in bold headlines, Marconi will report the yacht races by his wireless system. The Herald will thus prove a boom, not only to science, but to millions of persons who will wait with eagerness the result of a contest that has excited more interest than any in the history of America's Cup. The story included illustrations of the apparatus, the race course, the inventor, and assured its readers that wireless telegraphy was no longer a dream of the scientist, but an accomplished fact. Two steamships, the Ponce and the Grand Duchess, were equipped with wireless to transmit the race progress to two stations. One was at the Nave Sink Highlands in New Jersey, and the other at 34th Street in Manhattan at the paper's new offices in Herald Square. Thousands of people crowded onto excursion boats to follow the progress. Thousands more lined the coast of New Jersey and still more blocked traffic here near the Herald's outdoor bulletin board. The eager audience awaited word. Marconi's wireless was a success. The Herald's late edition boasted, Signor Marconi enabled the public to follow every movement of the yachts from the start. There were loud hurrahs as messages came in and were placed on the bulletin board. Marconi later recalled that what impressed the public most was the rapidity of the system. In many cases, the public was less than 30 seconds behind the progress of the yachts. The press lauded Marconi as reserved, courteous, and even self-effacing. All the world admires a savant, but it will accept a man of only moderate learning if he will create from the remnants of knowledge something for the immediate good of humanity. Electrical world. To fulfill this promise, wireless had to provide benefits to the lives of millions of people, not just the richest hundreds. For the first time, ordinary people could potentially have the opportunity to know what was happening simultaneously in other parts of the world. Think of what this would mean, of the calling, which goes on every day from room to room in a house, and then think of that calling extending from pole to pole, not a noisy babble, but a call audible to him and her who wants to hear and absolutely silent to all others. It would be almost like a dreamland and a ghost land, not the ghost land cultivated by heated imagination, but a real conversation from distance based on true physical laws. Century Magazine. At this point in time, Marconi's primary focus was single-point-to-point -point communication in the form of Morse code dots and dashes. Wireless telegraphy promised to cut into the large-scale communications monopolies held in the U.S. by Western Union and Bell Telephone. Newspapers in the late 1890s were paying 10 cents per word, while private parties and businesses were paying 25 cents per word for press dispatches from London via cable code. That decade, the New York Times quoted Professor Michael Pupin, The Western Union and postal companies are both using antiquated methods. 
The Western Union Company does not spend 10 cents a year for experiments, so far as I can learn. As the year 1900 approached, the fervor for wireless communication was about to reach an all-time high. The time is coming, and very soon, too, when the country's leaders in music, science, and politics will no longer be content to give their best to, literally speaking, a mere handful of people within the confines of four walls. Indeed, they will demand, and rightly so, that they be heard by the people of every state, every city, and every town and hamlet, in railway trains and vessels on the high seas, in short, by millions instead of hundreds. Papa, Papa, надо вставать, просыпайся. Ладно, я сам. New York, 1900. The sound of a not yet awake Lower East Side. You're hearing an enterprising young boy named David Sarnoff. He wants to make sure he's the first paper boy to collect the morning edition. His family has just emigrated to New York from an isolated Russian village where he only spoke Yiddish and Russian, and his only book was the Torah. Now, although only nine years old, he sees a chance to grow in a city of four million people, and after his father contracted tuberculosis, he spent as much time working as he did in school. Six years later, he's here on Wall Street, walking to work with the massive AM commuters. He'd recently been fired by the commercial cable company for taking a day off on Rosh Hashanah, but today he's about to begin his first day of work as his new employer. Good morning, Marconi Wireless Telegraphy Company. What floor, please? David Sarnoff. Third floor, please. Take the elevator behind you, Mr. Sarnoff. What floor? Three, please. First day, huh? <laughs> well, good luck, kid. David Sarnoff is to have one of the most forward-thinking and serendipitous careers in radio history. Guglielmo Marconi's success at the America's Cup races in October of 1899 helped catch the attention of inventors Reginald Fessenden and Lee DeForest. In 1899, wireless reception was still erratic, with no way to tune and a maximum transmission distance of about 35 miles. Marconi's transmitter worked on one frequency, which meant only one transmitter can signal in a given area of time. The crude spark device sent out intermittent waves as the energy rose and fell. Marconi wanted to improve ship-to-ship -ship messaging and wanted his waves to be private. In 1900, he hired John Ambrose Fleming, a scientist with a long career who'd worked for James Clerk Maxwell and who was also a professor of electrical engineering at the University College of London. Unwittingly, I had discovered an invisible empire of the air intangible, yet solid as granite, whose structure shall persist while man inhabits the planet. Lee DeForest. Lee DeForest had once wanted to work for Guglielmo Marconi, but his employment attempt was rebuffed and a short time after, DeForest struck out on his own. By 1900, 
Using a spark coil transmitter and a responder receiver, DeForest was able to wirelessly transmit for about four miles. More importantly, it improved reception and allowed him to transmit about 35 Morse code words per minute, over 20 more than Marconi's coherer. For Marconi, many of the old problems with wireless persisted. Despite vast improvements, messages were still not secret, and compared to cabled operations, the transmission was slow and reception haphazard. In 1901, DeForest went to New York. He challenged Marconi to compete for top speed in relaying race results of the 1901 America's Cup. Marconi was scheduled to cover the 1901 yacht races for the Associated Press. DeForest, eager to gain the spotlight, persuaded Charles Seidler, former mayor of Jersey City, New Jersey, to advance him $1,000 in support of his demonstrations. DeForest also secured a contract with the AP's rival, the Publishers Press Association. The races took place only a few weeks after President McKinley was assassinated. The mood was vastly different from only two years before. Crowds of onlookers gathered around the shorelines nearby. Both men's ships raced out to the waters to catch the best viewing of the race. Jockeying for position, they took their places. Marconi's system, DeForest's system. They were both tuned in and tuned on. But because the wireless systems operated on the same wavelength, they jammed each other, and neither transmission worked. In addition, a third unidentified transmitter began broadcasting with no apparent other purpose than to throw a further wrench into communications. This third party was the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, whose goal was to embarrass Marconi. Its operator periodically leaned on the key, making transmission and reception impossible. The key to overtaking the cable business was transatlantic wireless reception. Marconi established a wireless transmitting station in County Wexford, Ireland in 1901 to act as a link between Cornwall, England and County Galway, Ireland. On November 27, 1901, he sailed from England to Newfoundland, Marconi downplayed his trip, claiming he was going to conduct some experiments on ship-to-shore transmission. He was, in fact, attempting to leave his competitors behind once and for all. Back in 1897, Oliver Lodge had studied selective resonance, or what we might think of today as tuning into different frequencies. Lodge discovered that by adding matched induction coils to the aerial connections of both his wireless transmitter and receiver, he could tune into different frequencies. Marconi took Lodge's finding and quadrupled the sensitivity by using four induction coils on each part. This tuning improvement was patented in England as number 7777. Can you hear anything, Mr. Kemp? Three dots, Mr. Marconi. I can hear them. They're faint, but I can hear them. On December 12th, 1901 at 12.30 p.m., a single letter S was received at Marconi's base at St. John's in Newfoundland. He used a 500-foot kite-supported antenna for reception. The distance between the two points was about 2,200 miles. Here is nothing but space, a pole with a pendant wire on one side of a broad curving ocean, an uncertain kit struggling in the air, and thought passing between them. Ray Steinard Baker. McClure's Magazine. Its results were considered with skepticism in the scientific community. The clicks were reported to have been heard faintly and sporadically. There was no independent confirmation of the reception reported, and the transmissions were difficult to distinguish from atmospheric noise. Marconi did later prove transmission of up to 1,550 miles and audio reception of up to 2,100 miles. The press heralded the achievement. 
So extraordinary is this achievement that had it been claimed by any other man than Marconi, doubts might well have been expressed. But the invariable modesty and unusual conservatism of the inventor have satisfied the world. Scientific American, 1902. In 1902, Marconi patented an improvement on the receiving system, the magnetic detector. Since messages were unrecorded, the magnetic detector included headphones, which meant that an operator had to be standing by at all times in order to receive the message. As a result, transmitting at predetermined times became very important. By then, the Marconi Wireless had negotiated contracts with several steamship companies, including the Cunard, as well as both the Italian and English Royal Navy. Marconi's singular belief in point-to-point -point wireless seemed to be proven correct. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. In 1901, the United States of America experienced one of its greatest bull markets in history. An unprecedented three million shares changed hands in one day. Newspapers published stories anticipating wireless telegraphy's limitless commercial potential. This bull market and the media that covered it highlighted the many rags-to-riches stories that were sweeping the nation. It fed into the belief that any one American could become rich and famous. Abraham White was a speculator and supposed entrepreneur who would later be charged with fraud. He once bought $1.5 million in treasury bonds on a loan from financier Russell Sage, only to turn around and sell them the same day for a $100,000 profit. In January of 1902, White incorporated the DeForest Wireless Telegraphy Company in New Jersey with a $1 million stock offering. White would be the president and DeForest would be the vice president and scientific director. White's plan involved circulating elaborate stock brochures, generating publicity through press releases, building wireless stations, making elaborate claims, and selling stocks to anyone who would buy. DeForest regarded White as the friend of a hundred lifetimes, and all and more than a brother. It's fine fishing weather now that the oil fields have played out. Wireless is the bait to use at present. May we stock out string before the wind veers and sucker shoals are swept out to sea. The public did bite. In February of 1903, the DeForest Wireless Telegraph Company was incorporated in Maine, absorbing the New Jersey Company and offering $3 million in stock. Nine months later, White created the American DeForest Wireless Telegraph Company, this time with a $5 million stock offer. In 1904, he increased the capitalization to $15 million. Shares were sold at $7.50 apiece. White controlled most of the money, and DeForest was paid a modest $30 per week about $800 in 2018 U.S. dollars. White ordered stations to be built not to transmit, but to sell stock. 
In Atlanta, he built a station for $3,000 and sold $50,000 of stock to buyers only for the site to be abandoned without ever sending a telegram. However, DeForest Wireless did enjoy some success. There were stations in New York City, Coney Island, Atlantic City, Buffalo, Cleveland, North Carolina, and Chicago. In July of 1904, after impressing the officials of the Navy with the speed, accuracy, and distance of his system, DeForest secured a contract to erect long-distance stations at Panama, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Pensacola, and Key West. When Louis came home to the flat, he hung up his coat and he St. Louis, 1904. It's the centennial celebration of the Louisiana Purchase, and in its honor, there's a World's Fair. Here, the DeForest Company reached its zenith. DeForest supervised the construction of a 300-foot-high steel tower, the tallest structure at the fair, with his name in large letters attached to the side. Dozens of light bulbs surrounding each other created a glow that could be seen from any place on the ground. DeForest would spend the summer happily transmitting and living at the top. He ordered a cot to be placed in his transmitting area and would survey the magical scene beneath on summer nights. A bright day has at last broken and the tall mountain has not this time vanished like a dream. Unfortunately for DeForest, his incredibly public persona at the St. Louis World's Fair gave rise to detractors and those who challenged his inventions. In 1903, DeForest had visited the laboratory of Reginald Fessenden in Virginia and found his rival to be using an electrolytic detector consisting of two thin wires immersed in acid. At DeForest's laboratory, he and his assistant Clifford Babcock, a former employee of Fessenden's, developed what they called the spade detector, consisting of two flat platinum wires sealed in a glass tube with only their extreme end surfaces dipped in a small cup of sulfuric acid. Later, in competition with the Fessenden system for lucrative naval contracts, the DeForest Company sold its spade detector at prices far below its rival. Fessenden sued. In 1906, a federal judge in Vermont denied the DeForest Company use of the spade detector and assessed damages for the infringement. To protect his assets, Abraham White sent DeForest to Canada under the guise of waiting for the heat to blow over. In the meantime, White created the United Wireless Telegraph Company and transferred himself all of the company assets and none of the liabilities of American DeForest. Reginald Fessenden was frozen out of the damages he was rewarded, and DeForest was frozen out of the new company completely. I am daily more disgusted with the man in this newly revealed side of his character. I will never be intimately connected with him again. Lee DeForest. White cleaned DeForest out, seeing to it that he received only $1,000 in severance and a half of that amount went to lawyer's fees. He took all of DeForest's patents, same for one that he had deemed worthless. A new method of detecting wireless waves through a three-element electronic amplifying incandescent electric tube valve. DeForest called this invention the Audion. Although badly beaten and embarrassed, Lee DeForest publicly showed the invention for the first time on October 26, 1906 at a gathering of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers in New York. He claimed his tube was a new receiver for wireless telegraphy that, because of its steady waves, could broadcast the human voice. In December of that year, DeForest took out a patent. Although he received the patent, DeForest was once again beaten to the punch by his rival, Reginald Fessenden. All our civilization is based on invention. Before invention, 
mainly on fruits and nuts and pine coins, and slept in caves. Reginald Fessenden. Reginald Fessenden was a Canadian professor and engineer who, by the time of his death, held claim to 500 patents, second in number to only Thomas Edison. In 1900, Professor Fessenden wanted to find a way to transmit and receive human voices. He began experimenting with continuous wave transmissions. This led to the perfection of the arc transmitter. He also developed the alternator, which is similar to today's alternating current, or AM. He used a higher frequency and eliminated the need for spark gaps altogether. The professor worked at refining his discoveries for six years. On Christmas Eve in 1906, the same year that David Sarnoff began working for Marconi, and the same month that DeForest applied for his Audion patent, Fessenden became the first person to broadcast voice and music on wireless from his transmitter at Brant Rock, Massachusetts with a live violin serenade of Oh Holy Night. This is Reginald Fessenden. I would like to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of goodwill. Merry Christmas to all. Will those who have heard these words and music please write to Reginald Fessenden, Brant Rock, Massachusetts. We will speak to you again on New Year's Eve. DeForest was unfazed. He spoke about the Audion and early wireless broadcasting at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. In that same laboratory many months earlier, I conceived and tested the first three-electrode vacuum tube. In that same little laboratory, I had found that this grid tube, which is, we had recently christened the Audion, would simply would amplify telephone currents. I remember as if it were yesterday, that summer afternoon in 1907, when music was first sent out by radiophone. In 1907, when the idea of radio broadcasting first occurred, and again in 1910, when the voices of Metropolitan Opera singers Caruso and Martin were for the first time launched upon the ether, and again in 16, when for the first time regular radio concerts were maintained from my old station at High Bridge in the Bronx, there continued to dawn a widening vision of the astonishing potentialities of the radio broadcast, which vision the last 19 years have been bringing more and more into reality. But I confess that in those pioneer days, my eager imagination fell far short of picturing the astonishing hold with which this idea so suddenly gripped our entire nation. On January 20th, 1910, live from the stage at the Metropolitan Opera House, legendary tenor Enrico Caruso sang into a microphone connected to a 500-watt transmitter that sent the sound to receivers placed at the Inventors Park Avenue Laboratory. It was the first broadcast from a concert hall. Three years prior, inventor G.W. Picard discovered that minerals made an excellent detector, inventing the effective and inexpensive crystal detector. This made the availability of wireless receivers more widespread. DeForest's broadcast was picked up by 50 or so invited listeners, as well as ship operators and radio enthusiasts in the area that happened to have their wireless sets tuned on to that frequency. I look forward to the day when opera will be brought into every home. Someday the news and even advertising will be sent out over the wireless telephone. Lee DeForest. Unfortunately for DeForest, financial troubles forced him to sell his patents to the American Telephone and Telegraph Company for $500,000. The decision made by AT&T was thought to be foolish at the time, but later proved to be the investment that made the company. As impressive as the work of Fessenden and DeForest was at transmitting voices, Marconi's Morse code, point-to-point -point communication, 
was still the main method wireless was being used. Today, wireless joins two worlds. The New York Times, October 17, 1907. By 1905, the first distress message was sent via wireless telegraph from an American vessel to a receiving station on shore. Marconi continued to focus on increasing the distance of wireless reception and the perfection of tuning. In 1907, after six years of work, Marconi and his assistants established a daily 8-to-8 schedule for transatlantic wireless service. The New York Times hailed it as a monumental achievement. Marconi charged the press 5 cents per word and all other customers 10 cents per word. Beginning in October of 1907, the New York Times published a Marconi Transatlantic Wireless Dispatch section in its Sunday paper. However, the previous year, the Marconi company's gross earnings were still only $55,000. They averaged 70 messages per day, still far less than the cable companies. Wireless was still seen as a luxury. At the same time, the government was beginning to take an active interest in wireless transmission. There was a question as to who should control wireless, big business, the government, or the many small ham radio operators that had given the medium its life in the first place. Over the next two years, with each congressional session, bills were introduced to regulate wireless. Should wireless be controlled by few or by many? Congress wanted to regulate wireless, but the general public fear of government control of the medium overrode signal interference frustrations. A House of Representatives report stated that, if the use of wireless is not to be regulated, it may in the future result in disaster. The first hundred thousand, that was harder to get. But afterwards, it was easy to make more. John Jacob Astor. April 14, 1912, 375 miles south of New Finland, on board the RMS Titanic. At 11.40 p.m., lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg immediately ahead and alerted the bridge. First Officer William Murdoch quickly ordered the ship to be steered around the obstacle and the engines to be stopped. It was unfortunately Although not ripped in one continuous tear, the impact snapped off or popped open many iron rivets, creating narrow gaps through which water flooded. There were an estimated 2,224 passengers and crew on board. The Titanic was carrying only enough lifeboats for 1,178 people. The ship began to flood immediately, with water pouring in at an estimated rate of seven long turns per second, 15 times faster than what could be pumped out. Because the ship's boilers were full of hot, high-pressure steam, there was a substantial risk that they would explode if they were to come into contact with the cold seawater flooding the boiler rooms. The stokers and firemen were ordered to reduce the fires and vent the boilers, sending great quantities of steam up the funnel venting pipes. They were waist-deep in freezing water by the time they finished their work. Each bulkhead could be sealed by watertight doors. The engine room and boiler rooms on the top deck had vertically closing doors that could be controlled remotely from the bridge lowered automatically by a float if water was present, or closed manually by the crew. These took about 30 seconds to close. Warning bells and alternate escape routes were provided so that the crew would not be trapped by the doors. The Titanic had suffered damage to the four-speak tank, the 
three forward holds and a number six boiler room, only with five compartments. The ship had been designed to stay afloat with four of her forward compartments flooded, but no more, and the crew soon realized that the ship would sink. Within 45 minutes of the collision, at least 13,500 long tons of water had entered the ship. Alarm bells were ringing. A commotion of surging human energy was heard. Crew members shot the stress flares and took to the Marconi wireless transmission device that had been installed on board. Jack Phillips, one of the ship's wireless operators, began frantically sending distress signals. Operators at the Marconi station at Cape Race received the news almost immediately after the collision, as did two other liners, the Parisian and the Virginian, who were unfortunately 12 hours away. The only nearby ship to receive the call was the RMS Carpathia that happened by a fluke. The Carpathia's operator, Harold Cottam, had finished his work for the evening, but had returned to his wireless room to verify a time check with another ship. Had he not been there, no one nearby would have heard the distress signal until morning. This was a consequence of not having a loudspeaker, worker shifts, or a distress alarm for a sleeping operator. The Carpathia was 58 miles from the Titanic when it arrived on the scene three and a half hours after hearing the distress call. It could only rescue those who had managed to get into the lifeboats. The nearest ship, the California, was less than 20 miles from the Titanic when the accident occurred, but the California's only wireless operator was asleep when the Titanic broadcast its distress call. Another ship, the freight steamer Lena, was about 30 miles from the Titanic, but was not equipped with wireless telegraphy. By 1.20 a.m., the seriousness of the situation was now apparent to every passenger above decks, who began saying their goodbyes, with husbands escorting their wives and children to the lifeboats. Distress flares were fired every few minutes to attract the attention of any ships nearby, and radio operators repeatedly sent the distress signal CQD. In fact, Radio operator Harold Bride suggested to his colleague Jack Phillips that he should use the new SOS signal, as it may be the last chance you ever have to send it. By 1.30 in the morning on April 15th, the Titanic's downward angle in the water was increasing. The dire situation was reflected in the tone of the messages sent from the ship by Marconi operator Jack Phillips. 1.25, we are putting the women off in the boats. 1.35, engine room getting flooded. 1.45, engine room full up to its boilers. This was the Titanic's last intelligible signal, sent as the ship's electrical system began to fail. Subsequent messages were jumbled and broken. The two radio operators, nonetheless, continued sending out distress messages almost to the very end. John Jacob Astor IV was a passenger on the ship too. At 1.55 a.m., he saw his wife Madeline off to safety. But even though 20 of the 60 seats aboard were unoccupied, he was refused entry to a lifeboat a sign of the chaos and disorder as the seats were being saved for women and children that would never come. The last lifeboat to be launched left at 2.05 a.m. with 27 people aboard. At this point, the sea had reached the boat deck and the forecastle was deep underwater. Veteran Captain Edward Smith carried out the final tour of the deck, telling the radio operators and other crew members, now it's every man for himself. At 2.15, the Titanic's angle in the water began to increase rapidly as water poured into previously unflooded parts of the ship to the deck hatch. Her suddenly increasing angle caused what one survivor called a giant wave to wash along the ship from the forward end of the boat deck, sweeping many people into the sea. Marconi Jr. operator Harold Bride managed to escape at the last possible moment trapped under a lifeboat, but safe from the sweeping wave. Eyewitnesses saw the Titanic's stern rising high in the air as the ship tilted down into the water. Many survivors described a great noise. One passenger, Lawrence Beasley, described it as partly a groan, partly a rattle, 
partly a smash, and it was not a sudden roar as an explosion would be, it went on successively, for some seconds, possibly 15 to 20. After another minute, the ship's lights flickered once more, and then permanently went out, plunging the Titanic into darkness. Another passenger, Jack Thayer, recalled seeing groups of 1,500 people still aboard, clinging in clusters or bunches like swarming bees, only to fall in masses, pairs, or singly, as the great afterpart of the ship, 250 feet of it, rose into the sky. Shortly after the lights went out, the vessel tore in two, rotating on its surface. The Titanic disappeared from view at 2.20 a.m. on the morning of April 15, 1912, two hours and 40 minutes after striking the iceberg. Jack Thayer reported, with the deadened noise of the bursting of her last few gallant bulkheads, she slid quietly away from us into the sea. Those in the lifeboats are horrified to hear the sound of what Lawrence Beasley called every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, fierce resentment, and blind anger mingled. I am certain of those, with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me, that I should be caught in this death trap? Their cries came as a thunderbolt. Unexpected, inconceivable, incredible. No one in any of the boats standing off a few hundred yards away can have escaped the paralyzing shock of knowing that so short a distance away, a tragedy, unbelievable in its magnitude, was being enacted, which we, helpless, could in no way avert or diminish. Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, a British fashion designer who was a passenger on the ship, recalled, The very last cry was that of a man who had been calling loudly, My God, my God, my God. He cried in a dull, hopeless way. For an entire hour there had been an awful chorus of shrieks, gradually dying into a hopeless moan, until this last cry that I speak of. Then all was silent. More than 1,500 people died that night, including poor cabin boys and girls, and the richest man in America, John Jacob Astor IV. Like the democratic nature of wireless telegraphy, death came equally for the Titanic's passengers. In the aftermath of the disaster, the US government passed the Radio Act of 1912, which mandated that all radio stations in the United States be licensed by the federal government, as well as mandating that all seagoing vessels continuously monitor distress frequencies. No longer would amateur operators be able to freely transmit wireless telegraphy. It represented a watershed moment, the point after which all individual exploration of wireless would diminish and corporate management and exploitation in close collaboration with the government would increase. On that evening of April 14, 1912, the 21-year-old Marconi operator at the wireless station inside the Wanamaker department store at 9th Street and Broadway in New York stayed on duty to relay distress signals without a break, some say for up to 72 hours, never leaving his post. He was already a telegraph manager, but his active duty helped him receive a promotion to chief inspector and contract manager for a company whose revenue was about to swell after the just-passed radio act. This young man was David Sarnoff. 
I have in mind a plan of development which would make radio a household utility in the same sense as the piano or phonograph. The idea is to bring music into the house by wireless. The receiver can be designed in the form of a simple radio music box and arranged for several different wavelengths, which should be changeable with the throwing of a single switch or pressing of a single button. There should be no difficulty in receiving music perfectly when transmitted within a radius of 25 to 50 miles. Within such a radius, there reside hundreds of thousands of families. And as all can simultaneously receive from a single transmitter, there would be no question of obtaining sufficiently loud signals to make the performance enjoyable. The same principle can be extended to numerous other fields, as, for example, receiving lectures at home, which can be made perfectly audible. Also, events of national importance can be simultaneously announced and received. Baseball scores can be transmitted in the air by the use of one set installed at the polo grounds. While I have indicated a few of the most probable fields of usefulness for such a device, Yet there are numerous other fields to which the principle can be extended. Saroff sent the memo to his boss, Edward J. Nally, late in 1915, who dismissed it. War had come to Europe. When I introduced Herbert Hoover, he was at the Duquesne Club in Pittsburgh uh, and uh, made a talk soliciting funds for Belgian relief work. While the plan is particularly aimed to economic relief, Yet the economic relief means the swinging of men's minds from fear to confidence, the swinging of nations from the apprehension of disorder and of governmental collapse toward hope and confidence in the future. Next time on Breaking Walls, we introduce a future president of the United States, a man who was primarily responsible for the growth and regulation of wireless telegraphy and early broadcasting in the 1910s, and we tell the story of how this Secretary of Commerce became a father for radio broadcasting. Featured in today's cast were Samantha DeGracia, Olga Lysenko, Justin Peel, Nancy Pop, Fernando Sanabria, William Shallot, and John Stevenson. Nancy Pop is a New York-based writer, producer, actress, and comedian. She hosts a monthly variety show in New York City called She Bang, featuring an all-female lineup of comedians and poets. With Valentine's Day being this month, February She Bang's theme is all about self-love. You can check out the show on Wednesday, February 28th at Artichoke's Pizzeria, located at 18 Wyckoff Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. It starts at 8 p.m., and there is no cover charge. Samantha Leon de Gracia is a New York-based musician and songwriter. She's got a show coming up live at the Rockwood Music Hall, Stage 1, on Tuesday, February 27th. The address is 196 Allen Street in the Lower East Side of New York. To hear her most recent EP called Samantha Leon, L-E-O-N, search for that on iTunes or Spotify or go to samanthaleonmusic.com. Olga and Fernando run Yellow Trace, a multidisciplinary architecture and design firm with a focus in hospitality and residential. You can find out more information at yellowtrace.com. That's Y-E-L-L-O, like Jello. Today's introduction music of Claire DeLune was arranged for harp and vibraphone by David DePeters and played by Miss Elizabeth Hainan. You can pick up her album, Home, Works for Solo Harp, on iTunes and Amazon. 
and listen on Spotify and Pandora. Her website is elizabethheenan.com. The reading material for today's episode was Inventing American Broadcasting, 1899 to 1922 by Miss Susan J. Douglas, Empire of the Air by Tom Lewis, The Pictorial History of Radio's First 75 Years by B. Eric Rhodes, Hello Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio by Anthony Rudell, and The Network by Scott Woolley. I'd also like to extend a tremendous thank you to Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin, three old-time radio enthusiasts who host their own old-time radio program through the Yesterday USA Radio Network which you can find at yesterdayusa.com. And that thank you also extends to the late Les Tremaine and the late Jack Brown for their wonderful 1986 documentary, Please Stand By, A History of Radio. The interview clips in today's open were courtesy of Chuck Shaden, whose interviews can be found at speakingofradio.com, and Dick Bertell and the late Ed Corcoran's Golden Age of Radio program that ran on Hartford, Connecticut's WTIC in the 1970s. Some Golden Age of Radio communities to get involved in include the Old Time Radio Researchers Group at otrrlibrary.org, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy at spurvac.com, as well as the radio enthusiasts of Puget Sound. Reps, by the way, has an upcoming event called The Story of Radio, Saturday, March 3rd, 2018 at 2 p.m. It'll be at the St. John's United Lutheran Church, 5515 Finney Avenue, North Seattle, Washington, and you can find more information about that at repsonline.org. The Fireside Mystery Theater, they produce new time audio dramas live at the Slipper Room at 167 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side, not far from where David Sarnoff lived in 1900. Their last show, Lost at Sea, featured stories all taking place on the high seas. It was a fantastic live production, I was there. This month's show, entitled The Female of the Species, will be performed Sunday, March 25th, 2018. In honor of Women's History Month, they'll present audio drama adaptations of stories written by women and adapted by women. For advanced reduced rate tickets, please go to firesidemysterytheater.com. Doors open at 4.30 and the show begins at 5. If you're not in New York and can't see the Fireside Mystery Theater live, you can subscribe to their podcast, which are live recordings of the audio dramas enacted each month at the Slipper Room. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, and Audio Boom. The Bowery Boys are Greg Young and Tom Myers. Since 2007, they've produced over 250 podcast episodes on various moments, people, and structures in New York history. The show is available on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts, and you can find out more about Greg and Tom on BoweryBoysHistory.com. And while you're there, pick up a copy of their book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York. I've read my copy twice through, and it's perfect for self-guided walking tours of New York City. 20,000 Hertz is hosted by Dallas Taylor. It's a podcast on the stories behind the world's most recognizable sounds. 20K has produced episodes on topics such as Muzak, sounds that have become extinct in our lifetime, the art of voice acting, and the history of the NBC chimes. And they're on iTunes and everywhere that you get your podcasts. And their site, by the way, is thenumeral20k.org. Finally, you can find Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or through thewallbreakers.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. I'll be updating with new content for patrons at least once per week going forward. And The Wallbreakers, we're on all social media at The Wallbreakers. The next show in our series on the history of American radio drama will be available on March 1st, 2018. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 75 and until March 1st. I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.